You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn East. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's so good to see you guys. It's good to be inside again. Uh, I'm grateful that you've come out. I'm grateful that you're willing to adapt, to put on the masks, to join us this morning. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this morning's text. Father, we thank you for the gift of gathering, and we pray for our time together. We know your spirit is at work in our midst. We know your word is living and active. And I pray as we come and seek to put ourselves under your word, that you would produce transformation in us. You'd produce beauty in us, that you would bring deep conviction where we need it. You would bring comfort and encouragement where we're struggling. And that we might leave here with a clear understanding of not just of who you are, but of what you've done and what you continue to do in our world and in our lives. I pray that we would leave here with a confidence and a rock-steady faith in your goodness, even in the midst of challenging times. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our journey in Philippians. Today we come to Philippians 2, and we're going to look at verses 12 to 16. And I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, I have a friend who when she was young in her faith and she would sit down for her quiet times, read her Bible, she would read her Bible with a highlighter in one hand and a black magic marker in the other. And so when she came to passages that she liked, like a John 3.16, for God so loved the world, she would highlight the verse. And then when she came to passages that she didn't like so much, like Matthew 19, sell all you have and give it to the poor, she would take the black magic marker and just black out the verse so she didn't have to read it again. And she told me that story when I was a young believer. And I remember reading this passage here as a young believer. And I'm pretty confident if I had a magic marker, this would have been one that I would have chosen to black out. This is a hard passage. It's challenging. It's a bit confusing. 
You know, Paul's mantra throughout the New Testament is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we bring nothing to the table of our salvation except for our sin. And that when God saves us, he saves us single-handedly. And that's a hard message for, for us to wrap our minds around because most of us, we grew up in a pretty religious, moralistic society where we taught God helps those who help themselves and, you know, God loves the good kids and doesn't love the bad kids, that kind of thing. And so it took me years to really wrap my mind around the concept of grace, that we are saved by grace alone, that it's God who saves. And then you read this passage and Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling and I remember, it just didn't sound like good news. And yet, I don't know if there is a more timely or more potent text for us in this moment in time, both as a church and as individuals, than this one. Because this passage, it's all about, it's not about how we're saved, it's about how we grow. It's a text on spiritual growth. It's Paul walking us through the dynamics of Christian growth. And the reason I think it's so timely is because while I know the last few months have been hard on us on a number of levels, it's been hard, like what's, what's happening in society, business, health, all of those things. But I also know it's been hard on us spiritually. I've talked with you. I've talked with many of you. In the last few months, I know it's been, been a hard time for you. You wouldn't say that it's been your strongest months as a Christian. And and that makes sense to an extent. I mean, when we are stressed, when we're tired, when we're discouraged, especially when we're knocked out of our routine, that's when we're most spiritually vulnerable. And I find that's when we're most tempted to compromise. And that compromise could be something, you know, big and scandalous, or it could be just something small or maybe not even sinful, but just not the best. I think we've all felt some of this in our life. And one of the frustrating aspects of living in this fallen world is that good habits are really hard to pick up and really easy to give up. You know, if you're gonna eat healthy, a diet is really hard to stick to. Watching your food, it's really hard to do and it's really easy to give up. And then conversely, bad habits are really easy to pick up and they can be really hard to let down talked with you, and this could be things like our diet. I mean, I've, I've heard from many people about the quarantine 15 that they've gained over the last four months, but it could be something more significant. And my, my assumption for all of us in this room, that every single one of us, we have things in our life right now that we really want to see changed. We have ways that we really want to grow, that where we are now is not where we want to be six months from now, nine months from now, a year from now. And yet growth is hard. But in this text, Paul gives us the blueprint. And so all I want to do with our time together basically is walk through this text. And I want to show you that while on the surface it might seem hard and challenging, it's actually a very powerful text. It's an encouraging text and it's filled with hope. And so to start, Paul, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's really important to note that Paul is not writing to non-Christians here. This is not an evangelistic appeal. 
He's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who've already put their faith and their trust in Christ. And he doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. He's not talking about conversion. He's talking about salvation. And for a lot of us, that's where this passage gets a bit confusing. Because for most of us, we tend to equate conversion and salvation. We just think they're the same thing. But when you actually press into the New Testament, you'll see that Paul and the other authors, that while for them conversion and salvation, they're connected, they are not the same thing. They are not identical at all. When we, see, when we examine the New Testament, we actually see this concept of salvation. It's spoken of in different tenses. It's spoken of sometimes in the past tense, Titus 3, where we're told that God saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us, past tense. But then you get to Romans 13 and our salvation spoken of in future tense, where Paul says, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And then you come to 1 Corinthians 1, 18, and we see salvation in the present tense. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. All three tenses are used in the New Testament. The past tense, when, when the New Testament authors speak of salvation in the past tense, they're talking about how through Christ we've been saved from the penalty of sin. When they're talking about it in the future tense, they're talking about how in Christ the day is coming when we will be saved from the very presence of sin as God makes all things new. But when they speak of salvation in the present tense, they're talking about through Christ and the power of the Spirit, we can be set free from the very power of sin in our lives. And all of that falls under the umbrella of salvation. And Paul's plea, what, what he wants to communicate and what I desperately want to communicate to you this morning is that salvation is not just an event, it's also a process. Salvation is not just an event, it's also a process. Something you work out. And I know that can be confusing or challenging, or maybe that's a new concept for you. An imperfect, but I think helpful analogy would be marriage. Is marriage an event or is it a process? Well, it's both, right? I mean, the day before your wedding, you're single, and then you get, show up to your wedding, you exchange vows, and then you're married. You are married. It's an event, but it's also a process. Like, if you think that because you exchange vows, that's the extent of your marriage, you're going to be in for a rude awakening sooner or later. Because even though there's the event, there's also a process of growing and deepening and strengthening your relationship with your spouse. That is a part of marriage. That's the process of marriage. And in the same way, salvation is, yes, we are set free from the penalty of sin, when God saves us at once, we are declared righteous in that moment. And we are actually in that moment adopted into God's family as his daughters and sons. But then we are called to spend the rest of our lives learning to live and grow into this new identity as children of God. 
Hebrews talks about how Jesus is our brother and he's our pattern and our model. And so part of our salvation is that we learn to grow and be more and more conformed to his image. See, salvation, it's not just about what we've been saved from, it's about what we are being saved to. It's not just about being rescued from sin, it's also about God setting about a work in us to transform us into the image of his son. And I think so many of the problems in the modern church, in the American church, come because we only think of salvation in the past tense, and we never talk about it in the present tense. We talk about what we've been saved from, but we lose sight, we neglect, and sometimes we just ignore what we've been saved to. But this growing into Christ's likeness, this isn't in addition to salvation, this is part of our salvation, When all's said and done and God makes all things new, we will not sin anymore. We will be conformed to his image. And so Paul tells us, this is what what God is up to in your life. In the passage that Pastor Jonathan preached on last week, this is what Paul says, your attitude should be the same as as that of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, God wants you, I want you to grow and to be humble like Jesus is humble. I want you to learn to serve like Jesus serves. I want you to learn to love like Jesus loves, to forgive as Jesus forgives. This is God's great goal for our lives. And this is at the very heart of our salvation. And so the question is, how does this happen? How do we actually grow into Christ-likeness? Which that's, in essence, that's what holiness is and sanctification. How do we grow into Christ-likeness? There's a quote I read years ago that's stuck with me. It's from New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, and he writes this. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. I mean, that's a strong quote. Every time I read it, I'm convicted of something new in it. But Carson's point here is that nobody accidentally becomes godly. That nobody just stumbles into Christ's likeness. That it's not just if you're a Christian and you live long enough, this is going to happen. No, it takes what Carson calls grace-driven effort, what Paul calls here Work. It takes work. Now, you know, I think at one level, we all know this. We know this is a principle in life that if you, you want to be good at something, you want to be proficient, it takes work. You know, I, Pastor Jonathan talked about golfing in a sermon last week. Well, we went golfing together, so I'm going to keep the illustration going. And I used to golf a lot. I haven't played in a couple of years and it wasn't, it wasn't a, a great sight. You know, I wasn't going to 
I wasn't going to be on the PGA after that round. Uh, it's a great day. It's nice weather, but I played horribly. Now, I haven't played in two years. And in the past, when I would play horribly, I would get really mad at myself and frustrated. And, you know, image of a guy throwing a golf club. This time around, though, <laughs> about halfway through, I'm like, well, what, what did I expect? You don't play for two years. Do you expect to come out and shoot par? Of course not. Because in life, to get good at something, it requires effort and work and discipline. And this is true for golf. It's true for piano. It's true for ping pong, for baking or cooking or woodworking. You name it. You can have beginner's luck. But to be really good at something, to be proficient, it requires work. And it's no different for us if we want to grow into the image of Christ. Same thing. You have to put in the energy. You have to put in the effort. Grace-driven effort. And that's where Paul, he says, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he like instantly adds this addendum though, because he doesn't want us to think that this is something that we do for God or we do apart from God. Because in verse 13, he says, for... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, for Paul, and this is key, change is our work to do, and change is God's work to do. We are called to work out our salvation because, precisely because, God is working in us towards that goal. That God, I, I love how he says, it's God's good pleasure to work not just on your work, but on your will. God takes pleasure in refining not just what we do, but also what we desire. He's doing that work, and we are called to participate in it to cooperate with him. God gives us new power and new strength, gives us new longings. He refines old longings, and we're called to join him. Now, this work, that's sanctification. And where a lot of us, we get tripped up is the, the word work, it's bad when we add it to justification. When we're talking about how are we accepted by God, we are, we are accepted by grace alone, not, a result, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So works are a bad thing to add to our justification, but works are essential for our sanctification, for our growth. Because right after saying that we have been saved by grace, not a result of works so that no one can boast, Paul then says in Ephesians 2, 10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Now, it's a little confusing for us. What you have to remember is works, well, there's actually a quote by Dallas Willard that I think is so helpful. He says, grace, it's not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. What I think is so helpful there, earning is an attitude. When we think about our works, that's, that's how we're getting right with God. We've got real problems. 
but when we think our works is responding to God and what he's done in our life, that's how we really grow. Because God is at work in us, we are called to work out our salvation. Now, if you're tracking with me, then you can begin to make sense of that, those two words, fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think those two words were the hardest words for me when I was a new believer because it kind of seemed like the pressure is on. Don't screw this up because if you do, fear and trembling, God is going to strike you down at any moment. But that's not what Paul is communicating here. Don't think pressure. You have to get this right right now or else. Think Think gravity, think weightiness, think seriousness. The fear and trembling here, it's, it's not terror-fueled anxiety that God's going to cut us down at our first mistake. The fear and trembling Paul's speaking of here is more reverence and awe. I mean, there is a fear. There's a bit of trepidation. But think about, you know, if when you turn 16 and your dad had his dream car, his baby, and he gave you the keys. And you knew he loved that car, but he also wanted you to enjoy the car. When you get in the car and you start driving, there's a little fear and trembling with it, right? You don't want to wreck the thing because it's your dad's car. Or maybe it's a, a fine piece of jewelry that you got to hold. You're going to be very careful. Or, you know, a Mickey Mantle rookie card you got to see. You're going to be very careful. There's going to be reverence off fear and trembling not because you're afraid of the thing, but because you recognize the value. But Paul is saying you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because, precisely because, that's what God is up to in your life. And you got to take it seriously. And you got to approach your own growth as a believer with reverence. You got to recognize that there's gravity in this. Gravity to this. And Paul brings, this, brings the gravity of our growth to bear in the very next verse, 14 and 15, where he says, after he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul then, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Kind of seems like Paul's taking a right turn here. Like he's going one direction. But he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, this, this might seem like Paul's going on a tangent here, but for anyone who is familiar with the Old Testament, especially in Paul's day, they would know that what Paul is doing here is he's actually pointing back to a particular time in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. He's pointing back to the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus begins that God's people, they're living in slavery in Egypt. They're forced to make bricks without straw. They're living under the, the brutal reign of Pharaoh. And then God intervenes. He sends warnings and then he sends plagues. And then he delivers his people from their slavery. He saves them, parts the Red Sea, leads them into the wilderness and he promises to take them to the promised land. And so if you think about it, as the Israelites are in the wilderness there, were they saved? Had they experienced God's salvation? Well, sure. 
They've been saved from their slavery. They've been saved from their enemies. But they're also being saved. And they're also longing for the day when their salvation will be complete. Now, what happened for the Israelites is God delivers them. They're in the wilderness. God says, I, I want to show you how to live. And I want you to shine like stars in this world. I want you to put on display what life under my rule and reign looks like. I want you to show the world how humans were created to live. And so he gives them the Ten Commandments. But the Israelites, you know, they start to get a little hungry. They start to get a little thirsty. And so they start to grumble against God. See, they struggled with their present tense salvation. They grew impatient with God. Instead of learning to trust in, in him and depend on him, they complained. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and they ultimately grumbled against God. And it got so bad, and God gave them so many warnings, and then they're creating the golden calf and all this, worshiping this golden calf, doing all of this stuff as God's trying to save them. It's like, I saved you. I'm going to save you. I am saving you. And they just want no part of it. And so finally, God has enough because of their grumbling. And he basically sends them to run laps around the wilderness for 40 years. And they don't get to enter the promised land. They fall under God's judgment. And in Deuteronomy 32.5, Moses declares, he's talking about the Israelites. He says, they have dealt corruptly with him, with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Now here in Philippians 2, Paul is calling back to that verse. But what I love is he totally flips the script. In Deuteronomy, the crooked and twisted generation were God's people who were rebellious. But look what Paul says here. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that she may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You see, Paul, he isn't scolding the Philippians. He's, he's spurring them on. He's encouraging them. He's saying... Yes, the Israelites in the Old Testament, they didn't make it, but there's a new chance and a new opportunity and God's doing a new work in you, his church. I love how one author put it. He said, Paul sees the church as the people of the new Exodus who've been delivered from a spiritual Egypt by the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb, and who are now on their way home to the real promised land. And he wants us to get it right. I mean, Paul's plea in this passage is do not fall into the same trap the Israelites fell in. They had been saved, they were being saved, and this, their salvation was assured to them. But in the present tense salvation, they grew impatient, and they grumbled, and they complained. How do we get it right? Well, Paul tells us, he says, don't grumble, which I think is so interesting. <laughs> when you think of the list of serious sins in the Bible— you know, if I told you to write down the five worst sins in the Bible, I don't think grumbling would make the list. 
And yet Paul, the very heart of the message, the very heart of this letter, he's saying, if you're going to work out your salvation, you got to let go of your grumbling and complaining because grumbling, complaining, disputing, arguing, these are not just things we do. They're, they're postures of the soul. And I think really grumbling and complaining, grumbling and disputing, these are the opposite of fear and trembling. And what Paul is showing us is that as we are being saved, as we are being conformed to the image of Christ and, and God is going to work on, on us and he's testing us and he's refining us, there's two kinds of responses we can have. There's the fear and trembling. There's the reverence and awe that God is mightily at work no matter what my circumstances may look like. Or there's the grumbling and disputing where we just get frustrated because life's not going the way we think it should go. And because, man, it seemed like life was better a few months ago than it is now. And we should just be back in Egypt. And Paul says, if, if you're going to work out your salvation, it's got to be fear and trembling. It's not the grumbling. The grumbling at its heart, it's unbelief. It's a root sin, a very serious sin. You know, so serious that God, God banned them from entering into the promised land. He said, you don't get to come in. Because I wanted to do a work in you. I wanted to make you beautiful. I wanted to turn you into lights that shine for all the world. And you just grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. Now, where this gets challenging for us is we live in a society that's filled with grumbling. Like, that's the spirit of our day. That's the essence of social media, why it was invented. So that I could grumble, and then you could, you could re-grumble my grumble and share it with the world. And we just have this, this air. It's the air we breathe right now of complaining, criticizing, grumbling. So how do we escape it? How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling instead of giving in to the spirit of grumbling and disputing and complaining? Two things. Number one, we have to work out our own salvation. And what I mean by that is you have to work out your own salvation. You have to take responsibility for your own soul and for your own growth. You have to take responsibility. It's not all on you. God's working in you. But you have to take responsibility for yourself. I think this is what Paul is trying to communicate at the very beginning in verse 12 when he says, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. You know, when they came to faith, Paul was there. They loved his preaching and his teaching. He was brilliant. He had great illustrations. When they listened to Paul preach, it just warmed their hearts. But now Paul, he's in prison in Rome and he says, I'm not there anymore. I'm not there to keep checking in on you day in and day out. I'm not there to hold your hand on the journey of faith. I'm in prison. And so now it's on you to work out your salvation, not apart from God, but with God. I mean, Paul is telling the Philippians, you, you cannot outsource this work. You can't put it on other people. You can't put it on your pastors. And I don't, 
I don't know if this truth has been brought to bear on our lives more ever in my lifetime than right now. Like a year ago, spiritually, gosh, like you just showed up. As long as you showed up, good things were happening, you could grow. Here it's a lot harder this time. There's not as much to show up to. I think if if you have not developed spiritual disciplines in your life, you're really probably being exposed right now. And I don't say that with an ounce of judgment on you. It's just reality. That we're learning what our hearts, where our hearts really are. And I want to plead with you, you have to take responsibility for your own growth. I mean, we want to help as the church. We're constantly thinking and dreaming of ways to encourage you, to support you, of resources we can put in your hands. But in the end, all of our efforts can't make someone grow who doesn't want to grow. You can't force someone to grow. And so the first thing, you got to take responsibility for your own growth. And this can, can look a million different ways. It can look like getting up in the morning and spending 20 minutes in God's word and prayer. It can look like reaching out to another believer and saying, I need to have someone that I can confess sin to. It can be reaching out for help. I'm struggling. I'm discouraged. It can be reading great books. You name it. There are a lot of different ways, but you have to take the initiative. You can't wait for others to come to you. Take responsibility for your own growth. But then the second way we avoid the grumbling and we live into this call, Paul says in verse 16, is we hold fast to the word of life. We take responsibility for our own growth, but then we hold fast to the word of life, which is the gospel. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can talk about the gospel. Gospel means we've been forgiven. The gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus means that we are loved by God, but What I want you to hear, when Paul says, hold fast to the word of life, here's the word of life, that in Christ, God is for you. And you've got to hold this with the previous one, because if if you hear me say, take responsibility for your own growth, but in your mind, you think God is against you, that will lead to a miserable existence. But if you hear what Paul is saying here, take responsibility for your own growth, work out your salvation, because God delights to work it in you that he's for you, and it's his pleasure to bring it about in your life. I mean, if you want to be a person who moves beyond grumbling and complaining and disputing and all of these things, this is the key. You've got to hold fast to the word. I mean, why do we grumble? We grumble when we stop thinking that God is good or gracious or for us. We grumble when we lack the imagination to see how God might be using our present circumstances for our good. You know, the Israelites, they're in the wilderness and they've got God. He's leading them, pillar of smoke and fire. They've got God. He's with them. But then there's this water that they can't drink and they're, we're going to die of thirst. God's like, no, you're not. We're hungry. What are we going to do? Well, I will make magical honey bread appear for you, but you can only eat it a day at a time. See, God is saying, I've got a plan for you in this. I'm not being cruel. I'm teaching you to learn to depend on me and to trust me. 
day by day. See, the way out of grumbling is when we know that he's good, he's gracious, and he's for us. And he can use even the worst of circumstances for our good and our growth. So God began the good work in us, Paul says, and he's going to see it through. And I know it's been a hard season for many of us. I know a lot of you, there's compromise in your life right now. And I want to hold before you a final word of hope that, you know, both Judas and Peter compromised when they denied Jesus. Both of them did. And yet one of them was ruined and the other was restored to a life of great consequence and great fruitfulness. I mean, Peter's greatest ministry ever came after his greatest compromise ever. And so if you're in that place right now where you are stuck in a particular sin or a place of compromise, please do not let it rob you of the joy and the gift and the hope of restoration. Our God, he's faithful and just. He's eager to forgive. He's eager to restore. He is for you. But if you are constantly keeping me at arm's length, you're not working out your salvation. You're persisting in sin. God has such a better desire for you and such a greater hope for you. And that's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. We celebrate the fact that God is for us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ and through Christ. That on the night of Christ's betrayal, he took a loaf of bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. And it's not broken for you because you are perfect, it's broken for you because you are sinful. But I'm offering my body and I'm offering my blood so that you can be healed and you can be made whole. And Christ told us when we gather as his people that we should take part in this. And so if you have the communion packets we handed out, I encourage you to get those out. There's the wafer on top and there's the juice in there. And normally I give you instructions on how to take part, but you can, you can do what you want with those, figure out how you want to do it. But I'm going to pray. And as we take part in the Lord's Supper, let us be reminded that Christ saved us wholly and completely by his grace, but he's also called us to live into that salvation. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.